the last year, and so we're so thankful for your support. And so hopefully we can put a little more uh, flesh on the bones of what you guys are actually supporting. Uh, so as you guys think about Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, what are you thinking of? What comes to your mind? Yell it out. What's that? The White House. Congress. Disorder. Okay. <laughs> what else comes to your mind? Get one more. The swamp. Okay. When I think about Washington, D.C., I think the phrase that always comes to my mind more than anything else is that it's something that's very beautiful on the outside and very broken on the inside. And so there's always three examples that I love to use to illustrate that, uh, one of which is the Capitol building. So our church building is about uh, a half a mile from the Capitol building, right down Pennsylvania Avenue. And uh, the Capitol building is beautiful on the outside. The architecture is stunning. Uh, the people that are coming in and out are incredibly impressive. And so you may think that your elected officials are very powerful people, um, but the actual power is in the staffers that they hire. Uh, those are the people that are writing the bills, reading the bills, uh, telling their members, hey, this is what I think you should do, this is what I think you shouldn't do. And so these are people with college degrees. Uh, they're between 25 and 30. They're living on peanuts in the nation's capital because they want to accumulate power. Uh, and because they have zeal and a passion to change the world. They, they, the last few weeks I've talked to people who want to end homelessness, who want to fight poverty, who want to make education more accessible around the country. Uh, these people are very impressive, very virtuous, very beautiful on the outside, and on the inside they're full of brokenness. They want to change the world, but they need to be changed themselves. And so Capitol Hill is full of people that want to change the world, but it's also dominated by a hookup culture. The most popular meeting time on Capitol Hill is happy hour. And so these are very impressive people on the outside, just like the building, but very broken on the inside. Another example of that is homelessness. D.C. has the third highest homeless population in the United States. And when you come to D.C., not if, when you come to D.C., you won't see very many homeless people because the city does a very good job of hiding homeless people and a very poor job of taking care of homeless people. So they do things like drive trucks through the tent cities where the homeless people live um, because you're messing up the landscape and, and you're not making our city appealing to tourists. Uh, our city's very uh, divided along racial and economic lines and, and anything that would, that would fight against that is, is um, seen as a blemish. Beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, people are suffering and struggling, and they're, they're, they're not able to make ends meet. The last example, this is one's a little less common, uh, is our church is about a quarter mile from Marine Barracks, Washington, uh, which is the ceremonial face of the U.S. Marine Corps. And so this is the ceremonial face of the Marine Corps. And so these are guys that are good-looking, they got great grades and scores and everything in boot camp. They've got perfect smiles. They're all the exact same height. They're perfectly tanned. Um, and uh, they, they, the, the mission of Marine Barracks Washington is, is to represent the Marine Corps to Washington, D.C. And so anytime that you see Marines carrying caskets off of airplanes when someone died in combat, typically those Marines are stationed at Marine Barracks Washington. If you see uh, Marines... Uh, marching in front of the uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier 
in Arlington Cemetery. Typically, those Marines are stationed at Marine Barracks, Washington. Uh, the center of the actual Marine Barracks is this beautiful, sprawling green parade ground where during the summer, uh, the Marines put on a show. The Drum and Bugle Corps plays. Uh, all of the Marines march. They shoot their rifles in perfect synchronization. Uh, the, the Commandant, the highest enlisted uh, member of the Marine Corps, is, lives right there on Marine Barracks, Washington, in this house with a beautiful white facade. This facility is beautiful on the outside, and on the inside, it's full of brokenness. And so guys join the Marine Corps because they want to carry heavy stuff up mountains, they want to shoot stuff, and they want to slay dragons. And then if they do well enough in boot camp, they're the right height and they have a nice smile, then they get told, you're not going to carry heavy stuff up mountains, shoot rifles, and slay dragons. Instead, you're going to come to Washington, D.C. for 18 months and smile at tourists. And so these guys are very frustrated. They're very angry. And to be honest with you, these guys are 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. They don't know how to function as adults. And they're away from their mom for the first time in their lives. And so they fill that void with all sorts of confusion. With all sorts of confusion. And they throw their lives away on video games, on sexual morality, and the finest pleasures that they can find. And so just an illustration of this is, I shared this with Mark earlier, is that a Marine that I was discipling, he said, you know, what should I say when I see a girl walk into the Marine, into the Marine barracks, you know, and she's there to hook up with a guy that she just met online. And uh, we talk about that, and you know, maybe there's opportunity for evangelism there, maybe not, I don't know, that's weird. And he says, okay, the really hard thing is when you see the same girl walk in the Marine barracks in the same week with a different Marine. And so it's just a heartbreaking picture of something that's beautiful on the outside. These guys are literally there to look good and smile pretty. And on the inside, they are broken. They're plagued with anger and frustration because they're not doing the hard things that they joined the Marine Corps to do. And, um, and they're throwing their lives away, like I said. They don't know how to live. They don't know how to function as adults. Nobody's telling them what to do for the very first time in their lives. And again, most of them joined the military because they wanted somebody to tell them what to do for the rest of their life. And uh, here they are, and it's very much a college dorm situation uh, where they're, they're living with another 18, 19, 20-year-old, uh, and they have very low demands on them in terms of work. And so especially uh, outside of the summer, which is parade season, when they have their show twice a week, uh, they have very low commitments. They stand guard a few times every week. They have various other posts and duties that they need to do, but they have a lot of free time. And there's no one telling them, hey, this is how you should use that free time to become a better person. No, they're not thinking, hey, the military would pay for me to get a bachelor's degree. That would be a great idea. That would be a great use of all this free time that I have before I get shipped off uh, to Northern California where I'm going to have to carry heavy stuff up mountains all day. And so these guys... Every way that you look at it, they are throwing their lives away uh, on sin and on foolishness. And what they need more than anything, what the homeless in our city need more than anything, and what Capitol Hill staffers need more than anything is the hope of Christ. That's what people in D.C. need more than anything. Christ who sees the brokenness that's on the inside the brokenness that my prideful city tries so hard to hide, Christ sees that. He's not fooled by it. He's not impressed by it. 
and he's rushing towards those broken people with love and grace. And so I think that's that's my one-sentence summary of D.C. It's beautiful on the outside, and it is broken on the inside. Beautiful on the outside, very impressive and broken on the inside. A huge need for Christ. And evangelism in our city is very, very hard um, for, a, for a few reasons. One of which is that people, uh, people don't think that they have very much need. We talk about categories like sin and righteousness, and people very much put themselves in the good person category in Washington, D.C. And think about it, they moved to the city for very virtuous reasons, like fighting homelessness. You could, you could make better money in New York, you could experience better culture in California, uh, but you moved to Washington, D.C. because you want to make a difference in the world. And so these are very virtuous people. And when you talk about them and say, you're a sinner and you need Christ, that's a very strange category for a lot of these people. Uh, a lot of them have various affiliations with God and Christianity. People, people say sometimes, D.C. is a post-Christian city. And, and maybe that's true. It's definitely a post-evangelical city. Um, but one illustration of this is we've never had a president who didn't identify with some form of Christianity. Uh, not the kind of Christianity that Brother Mark has been preaching to you for the last, uh, <laughs> for the last years. Um, but, but at least every president that we've ever had disclaimed the name of Jesus in some capacity. And uh, that's just a picture that there's still a little bit of relational capital that comes with calling yourself a Christian or believing in God in Washington, D.C. And so we talk to a lot of people that are theists, that believe in God, um, that believe in a higher power, a lot of people who are spiritual but not religious. And um, uh, talking with them about Christ is just stumbling block after stumbling block after stumbling block, which is what the Word of God tells us it will be. And it's the same here in Mississippi, it's just a little more obvious for me uh, that, that the people that you're reaching out to are cloaking their, um, their lostness in religiosity and, and spiritual language and Christian language and church activity. And the people in my neighborhood are, are cloaking theirs in progressive thinking and, and in, um, you know, and in, and in you know, works righteousness. And so one illustration of this is our, we, have, we have some friends uh, their, their daughter is two days older than, than Maggie, and uh, their names are Will and Taylor, and they moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, around 2014, or, or they, they decided to stay in Washington, D.C. because he wanted to work for the Clinton administration, the Hillary Clinton administration. The Clinton administration never happened, and so they were super frustrated. Why are we even here still? Why did we buy this house and commit to stay in this area when, when the president that we were hanging all of our hopes on wasn't even elected, didn't even make it in the White House. Um, and so they're very progressive. He grew up in Alabama, uh, no, she grew up in Alabama. He grew up in Indiana as a pastor's kid, a Southern Baptist pastor's kid. And, um, and they're just, uh, they, they, they waffle from indifference to hostility towards Christianity. Uh, but they're members of New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, which is where Abraham Lincoln worshipped, fun fact. And so when, um, when the wife in this family, who's not a Christian, says she's not a Christian, doesn't want to be a Christian, <laughs> when she went to do a membership interview at this church, asked the, asked the female pastor, uh, so I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's a fable. That's a myth. I don't believe that. Can I be a member of this church? 
And the, the female pastor said, you know, I don't believe that most days either. You can definitely be a member of this church. <laughs> and so these are people claiming the name of Jesus in our city and inoculating our city to the true message of Jesus. It's like a vaccine. They're being injected with a dead version of Jesus-y morality and then deciding Christianity is not for me. And so a lot of people see Christianity and evangelicalism as a, either as a political movement, that Christianity says you have to vote this way and you have to hate these people and you have to watch these uninformed news channels, or they see it as a moral code, uh, that as long as you don't do X, Y, Z sins, then you'll be fine. But if you do those things, then you'll go to hell. And so people reject Christianity without ever giving Jesus a fair hearing. And so, I mean, I could pile illustration on illustration on illustration on, for this one. I mean, one, one example that I'll share is I, I, a few weeks ago I met a friend named Rachel. I sit outside of our church building every morning and pass out dog biscuits and just talk to people when they pass by. And, um, and this girl, Rachel, she grew up in Georgia and uh, went to Georgia Tech, and she's got a awesome, I don't even know what kind of dog it is. It's orange and fluffy uh, and really big. Uh, but her dog's name is also Georgia. And um, Georgia has been trained by Pastor Doug. You have to stop here every morning <laughs> at 1111 South Carolina Avenue to get your treat. And so Georgia will just come and get her treat, and she will plop down on my sidewalk. And her, her dog mom, Rachel, has to talk to me for that time. And so um, that's how we formed a relationship. That's how it started. And then a few weeks ago, and so these are usually very quick conversations, like, hey, how are you doing? Where do you work? Whatever. And, um, but a few weeks ago, um, she was wearing a shirt that says, uh, it was something like, I'm a spiritual gangster or something. And so I was like, hot dog, here's the opportunity. What does that mean? <laughs> and um, we were able to start a spiritual conversation based on that. And she, she told me about this class that she took when she was at Georgia Tech. And she said the class was designed to be very diverse, that she's Jewish, and so she was Jewish in this class, and there were Zoroastrians in this class, and other Jewish people in this class, and a few Christians in the class, Buddhists, Muslims. Um, and the class was all about just cultivating diversity and listening to diverse voices in every sphere of life. And, and she shared about how that class really opened her mind to spirituality and really helped her to grow to be a very tolerant and accepting person. And uh, Rachel uh, tells me this story about how open and accepting she is. And I said to her, so you're Jewish. You grew up Jewish. And um, she, she tells me that she, she doesn't really practice at all now. It's still a very important part of her identity. Um, she goes to synagogue, or uh, she said that she's looked for a temple in D.C., but never really found one. Um, and I don't know what that means. Uh, <laughs> but she says she goes on the high holy days. And so she's like a Christmas Easter equivalent. Um, but I said, so, so you're Jewish. What do you think about the claim of Jesus? That he claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. And she snorts. And she says, I think it's complete in our bull. <laughs> and so after, after you know, harping on her openness for 10 minutes, uh, she snorts and says, oh, no, that's, <laughs> that's, that's not acceptable. And uh, so we probed that a little bit. I said, great, we got somewhere to start, Rachel. I'd rather you say that than, you know, say something indifferent or whatever. 
And uh, we start to talk about it, and she has no idea the message of Jesus. And so we talk about, we talk about sin for a really long time. Um, that these prideful, virtuous people in D.C. need to realize and come to grips with the fact that they are sinners. And so we talked about sin for a long time. And she shared, um, she said about, you know, 15 minutes into this conversation. Um, and at this point, I'm like looking at my watch. I spend a lot of time on the streets and a 15-minute conversation can be rare. <laughs> and so um, she says, if that were true, it would be so depressing. And I said, well, it is true. But it's not the end of the story, because that's why Jesus came, and he died for our sins, and the punishment that we've earned, Jesus took it on himself, and he died for our sins, and he rose again, and you can trust in him, Rachel. He's the Messiah. He's come. And um, yeah, she was just, um, she was very intrigued and very indifferent. <laughs> and so you could pray for Rachel, pray that she would come to know the Lord. Um, yeah, she's somebody that I could definitely see like coming to something like a Christmas Christmas service or an Easter service, um, just very spiritually open, um, and and interested in in what I've shared with her. And so, I mean, yeah, I mean, in terms of like stories about what God's doing, I could share those all day. God's been so kind in the life of our church. Uh, I mean, like outside of the church, I was I shared with Mark. He may have shared with you a few months ago, but. Uh, that I had an opportunity also passing out dog biscuits to meet the first openly gay federal circuit court judge in the United States. And uh, he lives right down the street from our church building. He's got an awesome dog named Millie who has also been conditioned. He went away on a work trip for a month. And the very first day that he came back, his dog like makes a beeline for me. <laughs> I ran into them at the park one time and she made a beeline for me. And so uh, she's definitely been conditioned. And jokes on you Todd you're gonna you're gonna get some Jesus in there <laughs> and so getting to share with him and um, he grew up Methodist and left the church he hasn't told me why um, I also have no idea his preconceived notions about Christianity um, but he said uh, our, our first like deep conversation he he kept trying to you know defer and and put the attention off of himself and he said he said no now what kind of church is this and, and I get that question a few dozen times a month in D.C., so I kind of have a spiel where I say, well, we're a Baptist church, and that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. What we mean by that is, and then I basically just share the gospel with them and, and, and say, as Baptists, we believe that that's a decision that everybody has to make for themselves, and that's expressed in baptism. It's not something that your parents can do for you by baptizing you as a baby. It's not something that the state can do for you by, like, the inquisitions or baptizing you at the end of a sword. Uh, it's something that everybody has to decide for themselves. And um, that side note, that angle of Baptist theology is actually very appealing to people in, in D.C. Because it's very, it's very personal. It's very not domineering. It's not, I, you have to agree with me. It's that you have to decide to submit to King Jesus. And I can't make you do it. I don't want you to fake it. And I can't force you to do it. Um, and so, but that's interesting. But so I, he says, then what kind of church is this? It's a Baptist church. And I kind of launched my spiel. I'm like, oh boy, this is like the ninth time this week I've had to do this. But we're a Baptist church. And that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And he interrupts me. He cuts me off. And he says, and what it means to me is that you're not very good on LGBT issues. <laughs> I say, okay, <laughs> thanks for that. And so, um, 
But yeah, pray for him. He's been, like I said, he's been traveling a bunch and he just came back into town. I thought that he was avoiding me. I thought he changed his dog walking around so he wouldn't have to talk to me anymore. But he told me, no, I've just been traveling. And so pray for him. His name's Todd. Pray that he would come to know the Lord. Uh, last weekend, or two weekends ago, we had a Marine come to our church. His name's Daniel. And he very unassumingly comes up to me after the service. And he says, will you pray, pray with me? And I was like, sure, man, I'd love to pray with you. Like, what do you want me to pray about? Like, is there anything in particular that I should pray about? And he says, well, no, but I, I just want to follow Jesus and become a Christian. And I think that you're supposed to pray with somebody when you do that. <laughs> I was like, hot dog, man, this is great. And so I think this guy, Daniel, came to know the Lord in our church service a few weeks ago. And that was because someone invited him to our church years ago. And he never came. And then he just walks in. Uh, a few weeks ago, and, and just comes to know the Lord in one service. No idea what the Lord's been doing in his life. And so we're like, this is great. Let's, I want to start meeting up with you. I want to disciple you. I want to help you grow and like fan this profession into flame. And he's like, this is great, but I'm going to leave in three weeks. <laughs> and so that's another big ministry challenge in Washington, D.C., is that we typically have people for about three years, and then they move. Uh, either they get tired of the city, uh, and they move away into the suburbs, or they have kids, and they move away to have a little more space for the kids to spread out. Um, but, but it's a very transient city, and we see people come to Christ. There's another Marine that came to Christ in our church this year. His name's Mark, and he, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, he came to Christ, and um, he's a very new Christian, and waking up on Sundays is still a very big challenge for him. But multiple people in our church have looked at him and been like, yeah, like, I see this change in his life, and, like, God's done something in his heart. <laughs> but we haven't been able to baptize him, and he's getting ready to move to Albuquerque uh, for military assignment. And so, like, pray for him that this, like, new, for both these guys, that their new profession of faith, if genuine, uh, would persevere uh, as they move. Uh, one to Louisiana, middle of nowhere, and one to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so, yeah, we, like, I need you guys to pray Pray for those guys, Daniel and Mark. Um, but yeah, we just get so many opportunities to speak to people about Christ and about what he's done and what he's done in our lives and in our church. Uh, I mean, a few stories from inside of our church is um, that uh, very shortly after our church started in 2019, this couple shows up and they seem great. Beautiful on the outside. What does that tell you? They're going to be, there's going to be something, something under the hood. <laughs> and so... Uh, they, I guess everyone in D.C. is a lemon. <laughs> they look great on the outside. They're broken on the inside. I've never thought about it that way. Um, but yeah, uh, <clears throat> this, this couple, she, um, I, I, I'm going to meet up with this guy on a Thursday night for discipleship for the first time. And I find out at a Wednesday night prayer meeting that another woman in our church is going to meet up with his wife uh, on that Thursday morning. And so I jokingly said, this couple that looks beautiful on the outside, I jokingly said to this woman, like, hey, give me a heads up if their marriage is a wreck uh, so, so I can, you know, work on this guy a little bit and help him. And she, uh, that woman in our church called me at 9.30 the next morning. is like, yeah, their marriage is a wreck. And she told me today that she's going to walk out on him, that she's done. She's giving up. And... Um, and he had a secret pornography addiction, and he had lied about it several times, and he'd been caught, 
um, in his lies several times. And um, I started meeting with him. I met with him for a year, and we talked about um, just being a godly husband. And I just beat it into his brain. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, in May of 2020, uh, and just seeing him grow crazy off the charts as a husband. And in May of 2020, his, uh, they tell us that they're pregnant. <laughs> so the first baby to be born in our church plant is this beautiful story of redemption of a wife that was ready to walk out, a husband that has completely ruined the ranch on his marriage. And their marriage was healed to the point that they were able to have a baby. And they've just continued to give more and more and more of themselves to the church. Uh, where last year we talk about transient people being one of our biggest challenges. Last year he starts interviewing for jobs in Virginia Beach because they're done with the city. They're tired of it. And uh, he gets the final round of an interview for a job, you know, three hours away, whatever. He, they're going to go. They're going to get their dream house. She loves big houses. She's always dreamed about having a big house with a big yard. And um, he's about to leave for his final interview for this job that he wants. Dream job that'll get them the dream house and the dream neighborhood with the dream yard and the dream dog and 2.5 kids. And he says, you know, I don't think this honors God. I don't think we can do this. I don't think we can leave Pillar, our church. And she's like, I've been waiting for you to say that. I've been getting really nervous that we're going to move to Virginia Beach. <laughs> and so, and so they, they bought a house in the city, uh, and they're here long term. And uh, we've just seen him grow so off the charts. We're talking about, like, starting elder training with him. Uh, and so the, it's just this beautiful story of redemption, which is what God has always done that he brings resurrection after crucifixion. He brings forgiveness to sin. He brings healing to sickness. And uh, I, mean, I mean, I think about Psalm 51, that when David is caught in sexual sin and murder, and he writes this beautiful story and song of redemption to God, and, uh, and Psalm 51 ends with, um, I have to read it to you because it's so good, I'll never be able to do it justice. But Psalm 51 ends with David's commitment to, um, to carry on what God has done. Um, so Psalm 51, 12, Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. And I just see God's grace has been poured out on this family's life and it's completely transformed their marriage, completely transformed their family, and they're laying themselves out to share the hope of Christ. The woman especially is one of the most faithful and fruitful evangelists in our church, uh, which says a lot because our church is very active in evangelism and really growing uh, to be more and more active in evangelism all of the time. And so we do a lot of evangelism to strangers. Like I told you about, I meet a bunch of random people on walks and passing out dog biscuits and we push our church like, hey, that's great. And we do street evangelism twice a month all together. Um, but we push our church like, hey, there's people in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your apartment building that need to know Christ. And so you need to go and, and find those people and 
and read the Bible with them. And, and a huge majority of our church is regularly reading the Bible with non-Christians and, and urging them, you need to believe in Christ. You need to repent. You need to be baptized. And so yeah, please pray for our church as we uh, continue to be increasingly unified around uh, every member being involved in ministry in that way. And so just a few ways that you could pray for us um, is I know that you guys want to get into the Bible. You're like, when is he going to stop talking about D.C.? I want to get into the Bible. Uh, a, few, uh, a few ways you could pray for us is, uh, is number one, fruitfulness in evangelism. So our church has been very faithful in evangelism. And uh, unless, unless, uh, unless someone is born again, we can't bear any fruit. So we pray to the Lord of the harvest. And so we need you to pray and come alongside us to pray that people would come to know the Lord in Washington, D.C. And so um, one thing I, I like to tell this to, to partner churches, because uh, I think it's a little bit annoying, but I think it'll stick in your head, is Marines on Monday, Marine Monday, MM. And so when you sit down for lunch and you thank God for your lunch on Monday, then you also pray that Marines would come to know Christ in Washington, D.C., that every Monday, Marine Monday. Hopefully that sticks in your brain, and, and five years from now, you're going to be saying, why am I always thinking about the Marine Corps on Monday? I don't know. I'm going to pray about that. Um, but yeah, I hope that that uh, sticks in your brain for a long time, but um, please pray for, pray for fruitfulness in the city, um, in the Marine, among the Marine barracks um, especially, but really all throughout the city and all throughout Capitol Hill. Um, Pray for unity among our elders. And so, um, by God's grace, we have three elders. Um, so, I'm, I'm part-time staff. Uh, we have another part-time elder, and then we have one volunteer elder. And so, pray that the, uh, pray that the church, uh, or that the elders would be unified as we, um, you know, seek to set the direction for the church. And um, specifically, you pray that we'd be increasingly unified around God's heart for the nations. And so I forgot to say this earlier, but um, my big heart for our church is there's plenty of healthy churches in Washington, D.C. I know you guys read the Nine Marks of a Healthy Church book um, all together as a church, and, and Brother Mark taught through that. Um, that pastor, the pastor that wrote that book is in Washington, D.C. He's three miles from our church building. And, and so why, why plant another church in Washington, D.C.? Like our vision, my vision for our church is really that we would be a church that exists for the nations. Uh, for those places and peoples that have never heard the name of Jesus. And I think D.C. is one of the most strategic places in the world to, to recruit workers to go to that kind of place because you get these young people with marketable skills and a passion to change the world. We catch those people for Christ. And we send them out uh, to every nation, to Morocco, Afghanistan, Indonesia, uh, places where I can't go with my master's of divinity degree, I can't go and say, I'm going to be a missionary. And, the, and the, the Iraqi government says, okay, you can go back, get back on your plane and go home now. We don't want you here. Um, but we have people who could say, I'd like to teach English. I'm a lawyer. I'm a communications professional. I'm a nurse. Uh, and, and those people are going to be welcomed into this country. Um, and so pray for that. That's a huge emphasis in our church. Um, we, do, we have ministry training cohorts every year. And so starting on the even years, we do our missional leader. It goes like a school year, so it starts in the fall, ends in the summer. Um, so it starts on the odd years, we do a missional leader cohort. 
uh, where this, we just wrapped that up, and we had uh, 11 people discerning a call to ministry leadership, whether pastors, church planners, missionaries, counselors, deacons, elders, um, just a really great group. And we spent a year investing in them, uh, discussing theology, giving them some practical ministry experience, teaching opportunities. And then uh, on the, starting on the odd years in the fall, we have our cross-cultural missions cohort. And so that'll start at the end of this month. And uh, we have eight people in our church uh, that have signed up for that cross-cultural cohort who have said, I'm going. I want to I wanna sacrifice everything and move overseas for the spread of the gospel. And so you guys and your support is creating a hub that I believe, by God's grace, can change nation after nation after nation uh, in the nation's capital. <laughs> and so please pray. Please pray for those individuals that are discerning and call to missions, um, that the Lord would continue to work on them and, and train them, that the next year would be profitable for them as they discern, uh, like learn about what God's word says about missions and doing it faithfully, and then that they would go um, and be sent well, uh, that they would persevere in that call. Uh, so that's another thing that you can pray for. Pray for all the names that I shared. Uh, I mean, I could, I could sit here and list out names, I think one thing that's interesting is we had two friends. I had two friends, two guys that I was kind of having conversations with that our relationship just fizzled out um, because they moved or their work picked up or whatever. And um, by God's grace, both of their kids are on Maggie's soccer team <laughs> this year. And so it's like, whoa, God's doing something. And so pray for, pray for those guys. Kevin is Jewish, married to a nominal Protestant, and uh, that's an interesting story, how they got married and everything. And then um, Will is the other guy who's actually the pastor's dad, that I, or the pastor's son from Indiana that I told you about. Um, I've had really good conversations with both of them. They're really open. And, um, yeah, pray, pray that they would come to know the Lord. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot. I mean, pray for that guy that I mentioned earlier who were, were about to start training him to be an elder. Um, yeah, his name's Walker. Pray that the Lord would sustain him in ministry. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's kind of the high level. I could talk all day. God's just done such amazing things. I love our church so much. I'm so thankful for all the ways God's at work. Um, but yeah, any questions about the work in D.C. or anything that I've shared? Well, it's a privilege. It's a privilege. Like, I talk to guys that commute to work in the White House every day, and I'm like, that's cool. And I ask them, like, does that get old? And they're like, no, it doesn't get old. Last year, we got to baptize an Oval Office sentry in our church. Um, so, you know, the Marines that, like, stand outside the White House looking all serious and outside the Oval Office? So we got to baptize one of those guys. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, the White House did certainly get old for him by the end of it. Um, but it's like, there's those like worldly reminders like, hey, this is pretty cool. And like, I, our church building is a half mile from the Capitol building and I walk two minutes away and I can see it. And I was like, that's pretty cool. We get to do evangelism in the nation's capital. But what's so much more of a privilege is that we get to be ambassadors for Christ. 
And like that privilege really does like rock my world every day. Uh, like we preached through the book of Jonah um, uh, uh, a year ago, I guess. And um, <laughs> that, was, that was really impactful for our church. And uh, what I did in the, the, first, the first sermon series, <laughs> the first sermon in that series, where I actually, I don't usually do this on Sunday mornings, but I, I took a whiteboard and I wrote on the top, Jonah plan, God's plan. <laughs> and I said, now if, if we follow Jonah and we run away from people who are far from God that God has sent us to, then zero members of our church are going to share Christ. Zero members of our church are going to uh, share the gospel. And that'll be, hmm, let me do the math here. Uh, that'll be carry the one. That'll be uh, zero people come to Christ next year in our church. But if we follow God's plan for our church, uh, we have 54 members at that time, uh, by God's grace growing. And so if every one of our members commits to sharing Christ, and let's just say that half of the people that they share with agree to read the Bible uh, with them in the next... Um, you know, in the next year, that's 22 people in evangelism Bible study. Let's just throw a number at the wall. What if 25% of those people come to know Christ? And, like, I'm not saying 25% of those people are going to know Christ, but, like, let's throw, let's throw something at the wall. That's seven people that come to know Christ uh, in our church in the next year because you've been faithful. And so, like, hey, which of these plans do you want to go on? And, like, our churches have been so eager and zealous uh, in evangelism, and, and we talk about it all the time. When we, when, when we do our new members class, we say, we're going to talk a lot about evangelism, so do not join our church. If you're going to get mad that we only talk about evangelism all the time and leave, um, because people have left our church over that. <laughs> people have left our church because they talk about evangelism too much. Like, talk about other things. It's like, they want us to talk about worldly things that don't matter. <laughs> um, and some good things, too. Um, but yeah, um, it's really a privilege. It's really a privilege. And like for me to have a flexible schedule where I'm able to like invest even more time into it is just such a privilege. And so, yeah, it's really encouraging. But thank you for that encouragement, Amanda. Yeah, any other questions? Amen. speak now. Forever hold your peace. How long... How long do y'all usually go? An hour? Okay. Well, open your Bible. I promised you we get to the Bible. <laughs> I talk too much. Open your Bible to Revelation 19. I just want to show you a few verses. This is... This is this is a picture of our church that, that I preached a wedding on the way down here. Our halfway point between D.C. and here was South Carolina, where two members of our church were getting married. And uh, they wanted me to preach Revelation 19 at their wedding because they knew there were going to be a lot of non-Christians, and they wanted them to hear godly, godly teaching, and they wanted them to be called to know Christ. And so they asked me, at our wedding, would you preach an expository sermon on Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb? Uh, because we want our wedding to point to a greater beauty. And I was like, hot dog, I will preach an expository sermon on Revelation 19 at your wedding so that people will come to know the Lord. And uh, so it's been on my mind and heart a lot in the last few weeks and just wanted to share with you. 
So beginning in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And so when I look at this passage, I see Christ at the center, and I see specifically two reasons to praise him. And, and, and this wedding day scene gives us a picture that Christ is more beautiful than the most beautiful bride, and he's more desirable than the most wonderful husband. And so, two reasons that you might believe that about him tonight is the first one is praise Jesus because he is the king of all the earth. So look at verse 6. And the context, again, this is a scene from the end of all things. God has gathered his people around his throne to celebrate him forever. And, and, and he says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. So this is a massive crowd, and instead of counting heads, which he could never do, he illustrates the size of the crowd by describing its sound. And he says that it's louder than all the waves of the ocean, louder than mighty peals of thunder, the loudest crack of thunder that you've ever heard. The crowd surrounding the throne of Jesus will be louder. And so I think, about, I think about that that's like a concert. I know you all had your wild days. And you went to concerts, and the music was way too loud, and you went home and you laid down, and there's ringing in your ears, and the music is still thumping in your head, and the praise of Jesus forever will be even louder because Christ is more impressive than the most impressive band. But the wild thing is you will never hear the ringing in your ears because the praise will never come to an end. It will be inescapable. And we'll never run out of things to praise about him. And so what on earth are they singing about Christ? They're crying out, hallelujah. Who knows what the word hallelujah means? Who's been paying attention in Hebrew class? It's a Hebrew word. That maybe y'all know how to spell. No, I won't know how to spell <laughs> What is wrong with me right now? Who knows what hallelujah means? Who said the word hallelujah or sang the word hallelujah in the past month? Like in the hymn book or at home or in your prayers? Who, who, just show of hands, who has said that word in the last month? Yeah, yeah, praise, exactly. Yeah. So Yah, think about like Yahweh, praise the Lord. So praise the Lord. Look at you, you didn't think you were going to get a Hebrew lesson tonight. 
But yeah, hallelujah, it means praise the Lord. It's a victory cry. It's you see something so amazing and wonderful and impressive, you can't help but exclaim victory and praise. Roll tide. And so hallelujah. Why hallelujah? Now here's the most important word in this passage. Not really, but I'm going to act like it is. The most important word in this passage comes up twice. And it's this word. For. Hallelujah. Why? For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And so if you want to strengthen your Bible study, your personal devotions throughout the week, this word for is worth its weight in gold. Typically shows a reason for something. And so if you want to just get more meat out of God's word, if you ever read a passage, especially in the New Testament, you're like, I have no idea what I just read. Look for the fours and make those connections and say, what, re- what, is, what reason is he giving and what's he giving it for? What's that connection? Um, but he says, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. So why do we praise the Lord in victory? Because the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. So this shows us three things about the Christ that is being praised. He's the Lord. There's no government. There's no church. There's no politician that can compare to his authority. He's almighty. There's no hero or military that could compare to his strength. And he reigns. He is sitting on a throne. And he will always accomplish his plans and purposes. Always, without a doubt. He is the king of the earth. And we can say to people that don't know Christ, we can say to them, he's the king whether you like it or not. He will reign over your life. He will have his way. And that's what makes sin so serious. That's what makes sin so serious. Uh, Maybe you've heard this illustration. I think it's really powerful in D.C. because I can point. Um, But I say, you know, if I slapped you in the face, that would be wrong. And, like, maybe I'd get in trouble for that. But if I went to the White House, and that's where I point, <laughs> and maybe people are like, geez, that guy's such a fool. Not even pointing in the right direction, probably. <laughs> um, but if, um, if I went to the White House, and I somehow got in the Oval Office, and I slapped Joe Biden in the face, I'd be in a lot more trouble. Because I slapped somebody that, let's face it, a little more important than you are. <laughs> and so at least in terms of, like, authority and power um as an image bearer he's just has the same importance and value as you um but our wrongdoing is not just wronging other people but it's violating the perfect laws of a perfect king and so and the glorious picture is that christ is not a king that rules with an iron fist he's a gentle king he's a kind king and he, he rules not as a, as a voracious, trigger-happy monster, but as a gentle and kind Savior. Uh, like, you know, like Ephesians 5 describes him as the head of the church who loved the church and gave himself up for her. So he's all-powerful, and he's reigning and always accomplishing his plans, but his plans are for the good of others. And that's the only scheme that would ever make sense of cross. If Christ was not completely oriented towards the good and the joy of others and the glory of God in that joy, 
then the cross would never have made any sense. So we see Christ as the Lord, and then the second half of the passage, or the, the rest of the passage, we see Christ as the Lamb. And so praise God, be, praise, praise Jesus because he's the king of all the earth. And then the second thing is praise Jesus because he's the lamb who died for sinners. He's the Lord, he's the lamb. So verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. That word exult, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know what that word meant. So I looked it up. A dictionary is another great Bible study tool. We get so prideful and we think, I should know what this means. I know what this means, basically. It's like, just get a dictionary or like ask Siri, like, what does exult mean? And you will strengthen your Bible study. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Exult is this extreme joy that's expressed in praise. It's being so wonderfully excited about something that you cannot keep silent because it's wonderful. And so what is this massive crowd praising Christ for? Let us rejoice. What's, what's the cause of all the joy and celebration? Let us resort, rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For, it's the second one, the marriage of the Lamb has come. And so like I said, I just preached a wedding last weekend. And this couple has been stressed out their lids about this wedding like and they they've made poor decisions (laughs) like wanting to have all these particular things for their wedding so it was their fault Um, but they've been stressed they've been like planning and planning and planning and working and working and diying for months but then at the end of it it's over wedding and at the end of all things after not just months of planning but millennia of pain Christ is with his people forever. It's the wedding day. We're here. We're joined together. It's over. And he's described, it's not just the marriage of the church. It's not just the marriage of Christ. It's the marriage of the lamb. The marriage of the lamb. So what does it mean for Christ to be the lamb? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Marriage of the lamb. The marriage of the lamb. What does it mean for Christ to be the lamb of God? is a sacrifice. That's right. The easiest summary of that is John 1, 29. John the Baptist sees Jesus from a distance, and he says, you've been, you've been studying the birth of John the Baptist. But John the Baptist sees Jesus, and he just yells out, there he is! John 1, 29. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the animal sacrificial system in the Old Testament built around Animal sacrifices to cover sins, to make atonement, to pay for our wrongdoing. Lambs, spotless lambs, some of the most most important of those sacrifices. And you have Christ as the most spotless one being offered for sin. So, I mean, you can never get too old of saying this, but because we've done wrong, we deserve to die. That's, that's, the, that's the automatic. That's where autopilot is taking you, to death. But because God loves us, Christ died in our place. The Lamb's blood washes us clean. 
Because Christ paid our debt. There is no debt left to pay. Because Christ died, we don't have to. And so if you, if you want to, like Amanda very humbly shared that she wants to grow in evangelism. That is, we all need to make that our heart in prayer. One of my favorite tools is Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's two cause and effects. Sin leads to death. Jesus leads to life. Which one do you want? <laughs> and I've had, I've had some good conversations. Just I print out that verse, and I, I have some like weird picture things that I draw on it that maybe is helpful. I don't know. Um, I like to try a, little, a lot of different things to start conversations and just see what, see what sticks and help start conversations. Um, but um, that's just a great verse. If you want to share with somebody that you know needs to know the Lord, then share that with them. Say, so do you think you've done wrong? Well, yeah, I mean, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. We need to realize and remember how big of a deal that is. And that's like the slogan of Washington, D.C. Well, nobody's perfect, except for me. That's the undertext <laughs> for a lot of people. So he's the Lamb of God, and because he's the, it's because he's the Lamb of God that there will be a marriage. That's why it's the marriage of the Lamb. He could have put any title for Christ in there. He could have said, or the, or the crowd, rather. They could have said anything. So the, the marriage of the shepherd has come. The marriage of the gate has come. The marriage of the light of the world has come. The marriage of the, of the, um, how many, what else is said about Christ? The marriage of the Messiah has come. He could have said anything, but he said lamb. Because if Christ is not the sacrificial lamb, there is no marriage. If Christ is not the sacrificial lamb, you will not be there around the last day. It doesn't matter how many times you've been here, how many times you've gathered with Community of Grace, how many great sermons of Brother Marks you've listened to. Unless Christ is the lamb... There is no marriage. You will not be brought with Christ. And that's the result that it goes into in the end of verse 7 and 8. And his bride, so the marriage of the Lamb has come. We've got the groom. That's half of what we need for a wedding. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so God's people are dressed in white clothes as a beautiful bride, ready to be with Christ forever. And, and, and notice how they, were, how they were clothed. It was granted to her to be clothed. It was granted to her. This is something that God has done in us. And so push the wedding imagery for a minute. This is not, Christ is not uni united to you forever because you're good enough. Because if that was the case, then Christ would have no bride. There is no one good enough. Not even one. It's not even because you're better than other people or more religious than other people. Again, think about the wedding illustration. That if we think that God will save us just because we're better than other people, this is a picture of Christ who's just so anxious to get married that he'll just settle for anyone. It's not because you've gone to church or done religious activity. Again, think about the marriage picture. 
That's like, a, that's like a picture of Christ who is just waiting in the wedding chapel in Las Vegas for the first person who's possibly interested in marrying him to come through. It's not because of those things, but because Christ died to wash them clean and Christ rose to give them his purity. And so everyone is judged, but Christians are saved not because they're perfect, but because Christ is. And so verse 9, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And so this is uh, an invitation that we have today, that you've received, and you have RSVP'd yes. I will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, not on my own merit, but by the merit of Christ. And that was actually the, the garments was actually a, um, a common cultural practice in Jesus' day uh, that it was, it was on the responsibility of the groom to make sure that wedding guests were properly clothed. So there's just an interesting cultural tidbit for you. And this is the invitation that we extend to others uh, to, to be united to Christ forever because he is the Lamb of God. And these are the true words of God. This is the truth. This is not, the, it says there at the end of verse 9, these are the true words of God, not because everything leading up to this has been a lie or not, not fully true. It's just when the Bible says something like that or when Jesus says truly, truly, that's just an indicator, hey, pay attention. Something important is about to happen. <laughs> so write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Did you get that? Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed, happy, joyful. This is where life is, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so this is your invitation to the marriage supper. And that's, that's the, the height and, 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 and climax of all of our joy, is that today we're united with Christ by faith. We don't have it fully yet. And at the end of all things, we will be united with him forever. And so it's amazing. I think most of the people in this room are married or have been married. And your wedding day was maybe the happiest day of your life. And there's an even happier day coming when you'll be filled with even more joy forever. And so as you think about your own marriage or think about other marriages, let those be a foretaste of what God is going to do on the last day when sin and suffering will become a distant memory and um, when you will be with Christ forever. And extend this, this free offer to the people that you know, whether the religiously lost, who think that they're good because they've been to church and they've got perfect Sunday school attendance, or people who aren't sure about God, invite them, extend this invitation to them. And it's a free, wonderful invitation. Come to the party. Come be, be cleaned in the blood of the Lamb. Drink from his well. Eat from his hand. And find true life because he has risen from the dead. And so traditional wedding vows typically somewhere include the phrase, until death do us part. And, and our union with Christ is actually the opposite. Death will never part you from Christ. But the death of Christ is actually what's brought you together with him. And so that's just 
this incredibly beautiful, glorious picture that Christ's bond with his people will never end because Christ died to, to put away everything that would separate us from God. And so that's just a quick take at Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Two reasons to praise Jesus. Because he's the king of the earth. Because he's the lamb who died for sinners. Because he's the Lord. And because he's the lamb. Let me, uh, let me pray for y'all. God, I thank you for a community of grace. And I thank you for these saints and their faithfulness to your word. And their zeal to know your word. And I pray that you continue to guide and direct them to be zealous in evangelism. Open their eyes, God, to see their coworkers and their neighbors and their store clerks and their waiters and waitresses with spiritual eyes as people who are lost in need of Christ or not. And I pray that you would give them boldness to share this message with, with them, that Christ is the Lamb who died for sinners. Oh, and God, may we be full of great hope, looking forward to the day that Christ will make all things new and bring all things together. God, we thank you that you are the God who saves. You laid down your life for the church and, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. We pray increasing unity for this church around that message, especially as they look forward to this potential merger with First Baptist. And we pray that these two congregations merging would become an even mightier force for your word to spread throughout Mississippi, throughout North America, and to the ends of the earth. I thank you for their partnership, and I pray that um, I pray that we continue to partner for many years to come as your word spreads. It's your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, brothers and sisters.